You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. There's a museum in Halifax, Nova Scotia called the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic, and it's a veritable treasure trove for those interested in the nautical history of Canada. It houses over 24,000 artifacts spanning from the 1850s to the present and covering topics like the Franklin Expedition, the Titanic, the World Wars, and the Halifax Explosion. But there's one item in particular that is likely the subject of more photo ops than anything else in the entire museum. Once you step inside, he's there to greet you. A brown and weathered skeleton, dressed in a torn bright white shirt, white trousers, and a stylish red and black jacket hanging in an iron gibbet a good 12 feet off the floor. His chained arms dangle at his sides. His complete set of impossibly white teeth gleam at you from behind his cage in an almost cheerful grimace, as if you caught him in an embarrassing situation, but he's decided to make the best of it, to grin and bear it. A stuffed seagull sits placidly above his head, nestled on the wooden beam that holds his gibbet in place. On the brick wall, in line with the corpse's dangling toes, a bright red sign provides some context. A pirate's fate. He looks like he was plucked from Disneyland's Pirates of the Caribbean, but this isn't just any old pirate. This grim yet strangely approachable figure is a recreation of the first person in Canada to be tried and executed for piracy. And he has a story worth sharing. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. On tonight's episode, True Crime Turned Legend. This is the story of sailors who get more than they bargained for when they join the crew of a mysterious vessel and enter the dark waters of Canadian history. Chapter 1. The Three Sisters at Fortune Bay To a person looking for transport in 1809, the schooner known as the Three Sisters seemed as good a choice as any. At least at first. John Piggott had been working as a fisherman and general laborer in Fortune Bay, Newfoundland for nearly five years. Now, with the snows of winter fast approaching, he had set his sights on the town of Halifax, Nova Scotia. But getting there was complicated. The Napoleonic Wars continued to rage across the Atlantic. The recently crowned Emperor of France controlled or influenced most of Western and Central Europe, and Britain was desperate for sailors to bolster its ranks and continue its rule of the waves. But for many British sailors, mastery of the ocean often meant misery upon it, and the navy ships that anchored off the coast of Nova Scotia would often find themselves a few sailors short by the time they set sail. Desertion rates were so bad, in fact, that in 1805, just four years earlier, the British Navy sent what were known as press gangs into the streets of downtown Halifax. Considered an evil necessity, a commissioned naval officer would arm ten of his most vicious men with clubs, swords, and pistols, and together they would raid taverns and homes along the eastern shore, forcing every able man they could find to join their ranks. They operated on a press-first, ask-questions-later policy, meaning that even if you were protected from impress under law, you might serve months on board a Navy vessel before the proper paperwork was filed, orders were received, and you could finally be discharged and return home. 
With no property and no official employment, a simple fisherman like John Pigott would be the perfect target once his vessel came within range of the colonial capital. The best way to avoid all of this was to somehow gain impress protection, essentially immunity from conscription into His Majesty's fleet. And that was usually done by joining a local militia or becoming a mate of a market boat. As luck would have it, the captain of the Three Sisters offered such protection. The vessel had come into port with a crew of just two men. The captain, who introduced himself as John Stairs, explained to John Pickett that the rest of the crew had been pressed, and, while he could steer her well enough, the only other man on board, the vessel's owner, John Tremaine, wasn't much of a sailor. They were bound for Halifax, he said, with a hold full of fish and other trade goods, but they needed additional hands to make the voyage. Captain Stairs promised to give Piggott the protection he desired, along with payment for his work, if he joined the crew and sailed with them to Halifax. It sounded like a great deal, so Piggott agreed. Captain Stairs smiled, then called down through the vessel's skylight. Moments later, the owner of the Three Sisters was on deck. He was a striking black-haired Irishman. His dark, piercing eyes, handsome, unlined face, and strong white teeth contrasted greatly with the worn and weathered faces of the men who usually came into port. With hurried pen strokes, the Irishman wrote a shipping contract for John Pigott and signed his name as John Tremaine. Happy to have found passage to Halifax, Pigott had his trunk brought on board. The next morning, Tremaine sent Pigott into the hold to do some work, but as the young fisherman approached, he noticed something unusual. The hatch was missing. Captain Stairs quickly waved this off. The three sisters had encountered a storm a few days prior, he said. The hatch had come loose and washed overboard, but not to worry, he would have a new one in place before they disembarked. Though the story about the storm was certainly possible, it was strange. Crews of trading vessels would have made doubly sure that the hatch was secure, lest they risk personal injury or, even worse, damage to the cargo. Something didn't feel right and things felt even worse once Pickett stepped inside the hold. He couldn't believe his eyes. The cargo they were hauling, around 600 quintals or about 130,000 pounds of fish, was not even stowed properly. Not at all. Instead, it was, as he put it, tossed carelessly about. This was not a vessel of established merchants run by a diligent crew. It was more likely, Pickett thought, that the three sisters had been stolen. Back on deck and in the light of a new day, there were other troubling signs. Aside from the ship's owner, John Tremaine, and the ship's captain, John Stairs, the Three Sisters was host to five other souls, Tremaine's wife, Margaret, and their four ragged-looking children dressed in scraps of calico. Piggott recalled how he was told that the former crew had been pressed into naval service, but Captain Stairs had promised Piggott that he would be protected from press gangs. If that were true, then why was the former crew not given the same protection? It was a strange offer, and the offer came from a strange man. Despite proclaiming himself as captain, there was something about Stairs that suggested he wasn't really all there. Oddly young for a captain, Stairs seemed melancholy, withdrawn, and frankly, a little slow. The ship's owner, Tremaine, on the other hand, seemed nervous and on edge constantly pacing the deck and drinking his way through the rum they had in their hold, Tremaine seemed eager to set sail. He routinely snapped at his wife and obsessively studied each ship that came into port. 
He was also bringing a fair number of goods on board and paying a much higher price here in Fortune Bay than he would in Halifax, their supposed destination. No, nothing seemed right about this at all. They were scheduled to depart the following morning, and John Pigott decided he wanted out. That evening, as Pigott and Stairs were rowing to shore, Pigott asked the captain for clear proof of the impress protection that he was promised. Don't worry, Captain Stairs told him. He would get it when they went to sea. Hmm. That answer wasn't good enough. Once on shore, Pigott met a captain of a brig that was anchored in the bay and asked him for some quick advice. He explained the nature of his contract and asked if someone like Stairs was even capable of offering impress protection. According to the captain of the brig, he was not. No simple captain of a tiny schooner could grant immunity from the press gangs of His Majesty's Navy. Unless he had a vested interest in the merchant ship's stores, Pigott was ripe for the picking. It was clear now that Captain Stairs had lied. But by catching him in that lie, Pigott felt he now had the means to legally break his contract. If the masters of the three sisters were unable to provide him with the protection as they had promised, then his contract would be void, and he would be spared from serving on a vessel that had all the marks of being stolen. Pickett quickly found Captain Stairs outside a Compting house and gave him an ultimatum. Either Stairs would provide him with his protection right this second, or he was out. He would consider himself released from his contract, and they would have to find another hand for the voyage. Stairs nervously asked Pigott to wait a moment, then ducked inside the office and reappeared with John Tremaine and two other men, a Mr. Thorne, who was the proprietor of the Compting House, and a Justice of the Peace, who didn't give his name. John Tremaine listened carefully to Pigott's grievances and then ordered Mr. Thorne to issue a bill of lading for 100 quintals of fish in Pigott's name, thus making Pigott responsible for one-sixth of the vessel's stores. This changed things. Now, Pigott wasn't just a sailor on the Three Sisters, he was part owner of its cargo, and that made him far less likely to be a victim of the press gangs that patrolled Halifax Harbor. At last, Pigott had his protection, but it was of little comfort. Pigott didn't trust Stairs or Tremaine, and simply wanted out of his contract. But his plan to void that contract had backfired, and now that Stairs and Tremaine had met their end of the agreement, Pigott was required by law to meet his. But Tremaine and Stairs were hiding something. He was sure of it, and a sense of dread grew inside him as he contemplated going to sea with these two mysterious men. His mind raced. Sensing hesitation, the Justice of the Peace stepped in and offered Pigott an ultimatum of his own. He could either return to the Three Sisters and prepare to get underway, or he could be clapped in irons, tied to a flagpole and beaten, and then forced to serve on board a man of war. If he ran, they would publish his name across the colony, making it impossible for him to show his face in Newfoundland ever again. Out of options, Pigott returned to the schooner and helped bring her to sea the following morning. Imagine his lack of surprise when the three sisters turned east and began sailing further away from Halifax. Chapter 2. Real Names Revealed Pigott was right. A few days after leaving Fortune Bay, the schooner arrived at a tiny port town even further east, St. Mary's, Newfoundland, nestled in a southern crook of the Avalon Peninsula. Once there, he confirmed another suspicion. The two men who hired him were not who they claimed to be. 
Captain John Stairs was no captain at all, but rather a simple sailor named John Kelly. The man who called himself the vessel's owner went by John Tremaine only on paper. His real name was Edward Jordan. Though it wasn't clear exactly what was going on with the three sisters and those on board, things were looking pretty suspicious. And yet, John Pigott didn't immediately jump ship. Why not? Well, we don't know for certain, but we can speculate. First, there was really nowhere for Pigott to go. St. Mary's was a tiny fishing village with far less traffic than the ports of Fortune Bay. The chance of finding timely alternate passage to Nova Scotia was slim, especially for a fisherman who was likely short on cash. In addition, the threat of being arrested, beaten, and sent to a man of war, a threat issued by a justice of the peace no less, was still fresh in his mind. Finally, despite all appearances, Edward Jordan and John Kelly did have some plausible explanations for their actions. In a quiet conversation on deck, Jordan admitted to Pigott that he owed some money in Halifax and had been using a fake name simply to avoid his creditors. Yes, the vessel had sailed east rather than west, but Jordan insisted that Halifax was still his ultimate destination. First, he intended to find a market that would pay him top dollar for his cargo, one-sixth of which now officially belonged to Pigott. After the sale was made, they would return triumphantly to Halifax. Pigott would have money in his pocket and be out of the reach of press gangs, and Jordan would pay his debt in full. Whatever his reasoning, it was clear to Pigott that staying on board the schooner was his best course of action, at least for the moment. But it was also clear to him and everyone else on board that the self-proclaimed Captain John Kelly didn't have the slightest idea of how to pilot the schooner. Pigott and another new hire, William Crewe, were simply hands for the vessel, and the only thing Edward Jordan seemed to be good at was nervously watching the horizon and drinking himself into a stupor. The three sisters needed a navigator, and the best place to find one was in St. John's. Chapter 3. St. John's On October 19th, Jordan and Pigott were sitting in a private room near the docks of St. John's, Newfoundland. Shortly after leaving St. Mary's, the Three Sisters was becalmed along the southern tip of the island. This would have been agonizing for Jordan, a man who hated staying too long in any one spot. He managed to signal a passing ship and had them send over a rowboat. Then, leaving the vessel in the hands of John Kelly, Jordan and Pigott headed for St. John's. Their plan was to find a competent navigator, sign him on, and then rendezvous with the three sisters at the Bay of Bulls, about 30 kilometers south of the city. When Patrick Power entered the room, they knew they had their man. A veteran captain and navigator, Power was as tough as nails. He told them that he was preparing to return to Ireland, as he did every year in October, to stock up on supplies for the spring fishery. Jordan's ears pricked up at the mention of the Emerald Isle, and he hired Power immediately, noting in the contract that Power would be responsible for helping them reach not Halifax, Nova Scotia, but rather Limerick, Ireland. He signed his name once again as John Tremaine. The next several days were spent waiting and watching for someone who could ferry the three men south to the Bay of Bulls. At least, that's how Power and Pickett spent their time. With the exception of one casual dinner at a local merchant's home, 
Edward Jordan spent most of his time locked inside his room with a bottle of rum. When asked why, he explained that he actually owed money to people in Halifax and St. John's. He didn't have the money to pay them either, so it would be best if he kept out of sight. Days later, Jordan, Pickett, and Power had finally found a boat that could take them south. But when they reached the Bay of Bulls, the Three Sisters was nowhere to be found. Promising the boatmen more money, which Jordan certainly did not have, the group patrolled the southern shore until an hour after dark, when they finally found the schooner anchored much further south, outside of Trapassi, Newfoundland. It was not a happy reunion. Chapter 4 an unhappy reunion. When Edward Jordan returned to the Three Sisters, he noticed two things. First, there were new additions to the crew. Second, his wife was missing. Margaret Jordan had gone to shore, and John Kelly was the only one who knew where she was. Jordan was incensed and demanded that Kelly return with him to shore immediately to retrieve her. They were back on deck an hour later with Margaret in tow. Jordan, drunk as usual, went immediately to bed, while Margaret, Kelly, Piggott, Power, and the rest of the crew sat in the cabin and drank. The skies were pitch black and heavy with clouds as the night wore on, and the crew talked quietly by candlelight. Suddenly, Edward Jordan burst into the cabin and spat at his wife. I hear you talk. He lunged forward. Margaret screamed and hid behind Kelly. Jordan pulled a musket from the wall. Power jumped to his feet and snatched the weapon from Jordan's hands, then gave it to one of the boatmen to hide. Jordan and Kelly immediately came to blows, with Jordan screaming that Kelly had slept with his wife. Jordan snarled and raved, swearing over and over again that he would kill Margaret, that she was the only person in the world who could hang him, and by God, she would do it if he didn't kill her first. Jordan ran to his bedside and flung open his trunk. He was frantically searching for his guns. Kelly went to his own bunk and pulled Jordan's pistols from beneath his mattress. Margaret fled through the main hatch. Patrick Power snatched the pistols from Kelly's hands and followed Margaret up on deck. Topside, Margaret turned to Power and begged him to throw the pistols into the sea before Jordan or Kelly could use them. Power, Power, she pleaded. You do not know what mischief they have done. Kelly appeared on deck moments later, insisting that he was hiding the pistols from Jordan. He certainly wasn't planning to use them. He was simply revealing them now so that Captain Power could dispose of them. Kelly cautioned, Power, you do not know what kind of man he is. Do not let those pistols come into Jordan's hands until you get to Ireland, or you will be sorry. With Kelly's help, Power located and secured the second musket, the last firearm on board, and gave it to Piggott to hide amongst the fish in the hold. Then he turned his attention to Jordan, calmer now, but still drunkenly rambling below. Margaret spoke up. Give him some rum and he will go to sleep, she said. Power went to the cabin, gave Jordan a drink, and guided him back to bed. Before he passed out, Jordan gave one last warning. Do not let that woman come to bed with me tonight, or I will take her life. Margaret knew he wasn't bluffing. She curled up on a locker and went to sleep. An hour before sunrise, Margaret was awake and beckoned Pickett to her side. Desperately whispering in the dark, she urged him to help her escape to shore. 
If he did, she promised she would tell him a secret that would, in her words, be of service to him. Afraid of making a bad situation even worse, Piggott refused. A short time later, Margaret was now on deck, begging Power for his help, but he also refused to help the desperate woman. Just then, Edward Jordan stumbled on deck in a drunken rage and ran toward his wife. Power stepped between them. Jordan grabbed Power by his shirt and demanded that he hand over his stolen pistols. Margaret Jordan screamed and crouched behind the captain. He will kill me, she said. You wouldn't let me ashore, and now he will kill me. My blood is on your hands. Jordan seethed with anger and accused Power and everyone else on board of sleeping with his wife. Yet somehow, the rugged navigator managed to calm the murderous Jordan to the point that, in an even gentle voice, the drunken Jordan managed to make a simple request. He wanted to speak to his wife, Margaret, in private. If she agreed to join him alone in his cabin, he promised he would not totally kill her. Who could say no to that? Amazingly, Margaret did as requested, and apparently, the couple remained on good terms for the rest of the day. Thanks to some quick thinking and most likely extensive experience with angry drunks, the crew of the three sisters had managed to avoid bloodshed. But their problems were just beginning. Chapter 5. Crazy John Kelly Remember when I said that John Kelly seemed a bit strange? Well, now he would act downright bizarre. As the dysfunctional couple retired to their cabin, Power and Kelly went ashore to gather some necessities. But when it came time to return to the schooner, Kelly flat out refused to go back. You couldn't blame him, really. He had nearly been shot the night before by a drunk and dangerously jealous man. But there was something else, some other reason behind his fear that Kelly wouldn't share. When Power pressed him, Kelly blurted out the first ridiculous excuse that popped into his head. He was jumping ship, here and now, in a small fishing village on a bleak autumn day, leaving his trunk and all of his belongings behind because he was engaged to be married that same evening. Apparently, the hapless ship's hand-turned-captain had somehow met Mrs. Wright, and she was waiting in Trapassi for his hand in marriage. Needless to say, Power didn't buy it. He urged Kelly to stay on and complete one more sailing to the Bay of Bulls, the last stop before Ireland. Kelly moped and complained, but ultimately agreed, much to the disappointment of his fake fiancé, no doubt. Both men returned to the ship, and Power began to take inventory of the vessel's provisions. He was only below for a few minutes when he heard a sound, a splash, and a call from one of his crew. Power ran on deck and looked over the side. John Kelly had thrown himself overboard and was now swimming through the icy water toward a boat heading for shore. Power ordered two men to pursue him, and it wasn't long before Kelly was back on board, soaking wet and shivering. After a brief but stern chat from his new captain, Kelly regained his composure and set to work on the rigging. Power returned to the inventory, until, a few minutes later, another splash. You guessed it, Kelly was back in the water. This time, he swam to one of the rowboats, heaved himself aboard, and began rowing like a madman to shore. Power had had enough. 
He jumped into the second boat and gave chase, catching up with Kelly just as he reached the shore. Everyone watched from the side as Power leapt to the dock and knocked Kelly down with a single punch. Leaving him a pathetic mess on the wharf, Power tethered the boats together and returned to ship alone. Now, you might think that would be the end of it. John Kelly wanted to leave the vessel and he got just what he wanted, albeit with a little bit of bruising of his face and his pride. Most people would have taken this opportunity to leave a bad situation behind them. But Kelly wasn't like most people. Kelly was different. So different that even Edward Jordan, the murderous alcoholic, thought he was, quote, stupid and deranged. For some reason, maybe it was out of pride or concern for poor Margaret, or simply to collect the things he left behind, John Kelly was back on board just a few minutes later. Puffing up his chest, he confidently strode across the deck and, as if he had learned nothing at all, dealt Patrick Power a retaliatory blow. Power responded in kind with another quick jab to the face that sent Kelly tumbling through the hatchway. Moments later, Kelly appeared on deck a final time, now joined by William Crew and John Pickett, all of them dragging their trunks from below. It seems the crew had had enough. Sensing a mutiny or potential desertion on their hands, Patrick Power and Edward Jordan joined forces and warned that any man who attempted to take a boat to shore would be shot. As an additional precaution, Power weighed anchor and allowed the vessel to drift further offshore. This was enough to get all three men to return their trunks, and Crew and Piggott got back to work. John Kelly, on the other hand, stayed below. Power set course, Jordan swigged a mouthful of grog, and the three sisters set sail once again while a bruised and broken John Kelly sulked in the hold. Chapter 6. The Beginning of the End One Last Stop Though Edward Jordan was eager to leave the North American coast behind him, the three sisters needed more provisions for its journey across the Atlantic, and the Bay of Bulls was the perfect choice. Jordan had friends there who would provide him with quality sea stock at a good price, along with the latest news from across the empire. The shores of Ireland were getting closer, together with their promise of a fresh start for Jordan and his family. But his past and the mysterious unnamed troubles that chased him were still lurking behind, just out of sight. Day and night, Jordan would sit near the helm, bottle in hand, watching the horizon. Each time a ship's sails would appear, he would hurl questions at the navigator. What kind of ship was that? What was her course? What flag did she fly? Any vessel from Halifax was given a wide berth. When the rum got the better of him, Jordan would again lash out at his wife and hurl angry insults, paranoid accusations, and deadly threats. He would demand that the crew return his pistols, then plead with them. They didn't understand, he insisted. He had to shoot her. She was the only person who could see him hanged. Thankfully, with all weapons secured and John Kelly, another source of agitation, moping in his bed below, Jordan's ramblings never escalated beyond drunken threats. Though Jordan's threats were best ignored, his words were still curious. What did he mean when he said that his wife, Margaret, was the only person who could see him hanged? John Piggott asked Margaret several times on the voyage, but her answer was always elusive. Her husband was confused, she said. He was intoxicated, irate. He didn't know what he was saying. 
His words were simply the nonsensical accusations of a nervous and neurotic drunk. Nothing more. At long last, the crew arrived at the Bay of Bulls, and Jordan left to find his friends and procure wood and water. Meanwhile, Patrick Power and John Pigott accompanied Margaret ashore, where she was permitted, under their close supervision, to wash her children's clothing. After a time, Power left Margaret under Pigott's supervision and went to help Jordan with his goods. But when Jordan learned that his wife had come ashore, he became, as Power would later testify, greatly disturbed and ordered everyone to return to the vessel. Power, Pigott, and Margaret did as ordered, and Jordan followed minutes later. Once on board, an agitated Jordan ordered Power to immediately go to sea. Power refused. The wind was blowing into the bay, he said, and they would likely need to wait until morning. Jordan was furious. If we can't sail her out, I'll tow her out, he said, and left to rally his friends. In response, Power brought the vessel even further into the harbor. Edward Jordan returned with a number of men at his side and demanded again that Power go to sea. Though pressured by Jordan and his motley crew, Patrick Power stood his ground, telling them that even if they managed to tow the vessel beyond the bay, he would simply refuse to navigate, and without his help, they wouldn't get very far. Jordan grew desperate. He took Power aside and begged him to comply. Then came a bombshell. Edward Jordan revealed to Power that, while in town, he had learned that a Navy schooner had been dispatched from St. John's that very evening. It was on course to intercept the three sisters by morning, and they had precious little time to escape. It was now crystal clear. Edward Jordan wasn't just avoiding some random debt collectors. He was running from the British Navy. No private debt, no matter how large, would ever warrant pursuit by a king's ship. Edward Jordan was guilty of something far worse than welching on a debt. Power decided, then and there, that he would have no further part in helping Jordan escape whatever justice was coming. With the vessel's sole navigator refusing to sail, and the winds against him, Jordan could do nothing but pace the deck in confusion while his impromptu gang returned to land. Suddenly, out of nowhere, John Kelly appeared on deck for the first time in days. He beckoned Power over and made a proposal oddly similar to what Margaret had offered Pickett days earlier. If Power would come with him to shore, Kelly would tell him, quote, something that would serve him. Power considered the offer and agreed. Why not? The Navy was on their way, the voyage was essentially over, and even crazy John Kelly now seemed like better company than the frantic Edward Jordan. There was only one problem. It would be exceptionally hard to escape while Jordan remained on deck. So, in a not-so-subtle maneuver, Power nonchalantly approached the haggard Jordan and suggested that maybe he should go below and, you know, get some sleep. Oh, and by the way, he and Kelly might go to shore for just a minute or two, but hey, don't worry, they'd be back soon enough. They weren't worried about the Navy ship that was pursuing them or anything. It's all good. Sweet dreams. Jordan was less than convinced, saying, you might as well kill me as go to shore. He crossed his arms and vowed that he would keep watch all night just to make sure that no one left the vessel. Kelly and Power gave up their plan to escape and went to bed. Dawn came, and Patrick Power woke to find an exhausted Edward Jordan standing over him. There was a fair wind, Jordan said. They should set sail immediately. Power blinked the sleep from his eyes, went on deck, paused a moment, 
and shook his head. No good. Yes, the wind had changed and was now blowing out of the bay, but it was blowing too strongly. They would have to wait a little longer or risk damage to their sails. This sent Jordan into a rage, but just before he opened his mouth, splash. Power and Jordan raced to the side and looked over. Sure enough, there was John Kelly. Once again, he had thrown himself overboard, scrambled into a boat, and was now desperately rowing to shore. Power called after him, hold up, he wanted to go too. Kelly yelled back, sorry, he couldn't stop, he had to escape, but he would send the boat back once he was safely on land. Power rushed below to gather his things, but heard a commotion and came back on deck. Edward Jordan had cut the cable, raised the jib, and was now standing near the companionway with an axe in his hand, silhouetted by the morning light. He stared at Power. I see you have her underway, Power said. I have, Jordan replied, and you shall go to sea. Or blood. He raised the axe menacingly. Knowing better than to argue with a drunk man with an axe in his hand, Power complied, and the three sisters set sail one last time. It was a desperate move by a desperate man, but it came too late. Just 30 minutes after leaving the bay, the crew spotted a navy ship on the horizon. Hoping to confuse his pursuers, Jordan ordered the man at the helm to suddenly turn the vessel about and head toward Halifax. But Power ordered the helmsman to maintain their course and threatened to strike him with a handspike if he did otherwise. Jordan's entire crew was now working against him, and he was powerless. He could do nothing but watch as the distant ship grew closer until finally it was upon them. Jordan cried out, Lord have mercy on me, what will my poor children do? And wilted where he stood. The HMS Cuttle, a schooner armed with four 12-pounder carronades, fired a warning shot and forced the three sisters to come about. The ship, her crew, and passengers were captured without incident and brought to Halifax. There, John Piggott, William Crew, and Patrick Power would learn that Piggott's early suspicions had been correct all along. The three sisters had been stolen, its original crew murdered, and Edward Jordan, Margaret Jordan, and John Kelly were wanted for murder, piracy, and robbery. Over the years, the story of the pirate Edward Jordan has become legend. As a new colony in a northern climate, Canada was never the first choice for pirates, and our stories of them are quite limited. But, like most people, we Canadians love the danger and intrigue of outlaws, so we tend to hold tightly onto whatever we can find here at home. Sometimes, when the mood strikes us, we might even spice it up with a little bit of romance and color, inspired by other legends and ideals that have entered our pop culture. That's certainly the case with this story. Today, the tale of Edward Jordan can be found in various books and websites, often in brief summary, but with little flourishes added, as if the author couldn't help but get carried away by the word pirate. In some accounts, Edward and Margaret snuck aboard the three sisters in the dead of night and slaughtered the crew with no motive beyond a psychotic thirst for blood and a desire for piratical freedom on the seven seas. In other versions, the couple were passengers when Edward Jordan just decided out of the blue that he wanted to be captain. The story says he befriended the mate, John Kelly, and together they hatched a plan to murder the crew and take the schooner by force. 
There's even one respected website, apparently devoted to lesser-known aspects of military history, that claims Jordan was a, quote, sea dog who cruised the waters off the eastern seaboard, plundering fishing vessels and traders until being captured by the Royal Navy. As you might have guessed, all of that is fabrication. Jordan was far too busy trying to find a half-decent navigator or drunkenly threatening his wife or bumbling his way from port to port to get much plundering in. Now, I can't really blame people for jumping to conclusions or adding a bit of romantic nonsense to the story. We hear the word pirate and our imaginations soar, or in this case, set sail. Without checking the facts, we imagine people like Jordan plundering ships and looting ports because, well, that's what a pirate does. At least in our stories, in our minds. It makes a somewhat dull or brief story a little more entertaining. But all of this fun with falsities also covers up the real story and the real people who lived it. So what is the real story of Edward Jordan? What really happened on board the Three Sisters before it reached Fortune Bay? What did Jordan do that would lead to these terrible allegations? What was Margaret's role, and how did John Kelly fit in? The answers don't fit our romanticized vision of what a pirate should be, but they have their share of drama and excitement. In fact, I think the truth is far more interesting than any legend. But that will have to wait until next episode, in part two. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Remember, if your next job offer seems too good to be true, you might want to look a little closer. You never know what happened to the last person who had your position. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Ryan Clark. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can support me through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.